Good morning. Welcome to North Sub. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest of ours, either here or online, thanks for spending the morning with us. Uh, one of the hopes that we have, a hope of ours, is that you'll find this to be a place where it's normal, where it's safe, uh, to honestly wrestle with some of the more difficult aspects of life and faith. So while this is always an open invitation, I want to particularly highlight today that we do respond to questions that you submit during our sermons at minimum. We'll always respond in writing in our weekly emails, but every so often, including today, we build some time into the service to respond to them live on the spot. So do save that number in your phone if you haven't already, 224 300 0240. And if you text in a question at any point during today's message, don't worry, it's anonymous there. I'm happy to do my best to respond to it at the conclusion of this sermon. By the way, past questions and responses live on our website. If you search bonus content on our website, and our website's also a place to find past sermons and life course audio for any teaching that you've missed or that you want to pass along to a friend. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> Some Bible verses score high on the offense and controversy meter. For example, when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Other Bible verses barely register on the offense and controversy meter. Like at all. Like when Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. We all nod our heads and say, amen. Religious or not. It's a bit more complex than just plotting verses along that chart though. Uh, it's probably the case that some of the verses that fall on that more controversial end of the spectrum maybe wouldn't be so controversial if we rightly understood them in context. In other words, the deeper we look into some of these, the less offensive the words there become. On the other hand, catch this, some of the scriptures that we place on this non-controversial end of the chart probably would be more offensive if people rightly understood them. Right? Like the deeper we look into some of these, the more they grate against what's accepted and treasured in our world and in our hearts. And that's the category where I'd place the three words that we are going to be looking at today. Uh, namely, God is love. Here's what I mean. Nobody's offended when I say God is love. What's there to be offended about? Claiming that God is love doesn't necessarily have to challenge any of what we treasure. Like even if I'm someone who doesn't believe in God at all, if I find out that you believe in a God who is characterized by love, why is that any skin off my back, right? Why should your God be distasteful to me? Now, of course, it starts to get a little bit more tricky once we ask for clarity on how we're defining that word love, right? And I don't know what you'd say to that. The most commonly held understanding of love maybe among my friends and neighbors is probably something adjacent to empathy like maybe love is maybe we could say it's like being for someone 
and entering into their feelings with them, or, or maybe unconditional positive regard. If something like that is the definition of love that we're carrying into the conversation, and then we hear that love is what defines God, apparently, well, most of us can get used to that kind of God, right? Most of us have had positive experiences with therapists at this point. Maybe God is like the cosmos' ultimate cheerleader therapist, helping us self-actualize, right? And besides, if he is love, then doesn't this word is here function uh, more or less like an equal sign in this sentence? Like, in other words, if I can say God is love, couldn't we just as easily say love is God? In which case, even if I don't practice religion, I can maybe get on board. If we're just claiming that love is the treasure so far above all other treasures that it should be treated as divine, wouldn't that make the world a better place? If we all just believe that God is love and love is God. So the argument sometimes goes. Maybe just to add one more reason for the near universal non-offense of the sentence God is love. Doesn't love being stated here as a noun instead of as an adjective imply that this is the attribute of God above all others? Have you heard that argument before? Like, because it's God is love, not God is loving. Doesn't that mean that God's love overrules all of his other characteristics? After all, God is holy, but the Bible never says God is holiness. God is just, but the Bible never says God is justice. Doesn't the language here imply that whatever else God might be, he is love more than he is anything else? Arguments like this, and you can find them a couple decades ago in best-selling books. Now you can find them all over TikTok. They often conclude something like this. Well, and this is the problem with Christians, or with evangelical Christians, right? Even though their own Bible says that God is love, they spend so much energy telling the rest of us that we're wrong, which is the opposite of love. So, you see how prominently these three words feature in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves? Here's my question this morning. What if each of these three words, God is love, actually means something different from what we might imagine it to mean? And what if when we actually understand what's meant by each of these three words, this much-affirmed verse turns out to become quite controversial? Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John chapter 4. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Pull up a Bible app. Uh, we're going to jump around the Bible actually a decent amount today, but I'll put the scripture up on the screen when it's not in 1 John 4. So it's a good idea to open there. Pastor Sean did a great job last year about this time preaching this as part of a much wider swath of text. So all I'm setting out to do actually is to just drill down into those three words. God is love. And by the way, if you're just joining us or if you jumped in with us last week on Easter and you're back, we're in the middle of a sermon series in which we're working through what are called the attributes of God. And while that may sound theoretical and abstract, we've actually become convinced that there's nothing more practical than what we believe about God because how we imagine God impacts all of the rest of how we live our lives. And the task that we've kept returning to in these early months of 2023 is, okay, let's set aside what we wish God was like. What's he actually like? 
And how should his self-revelation impact our day-to-day lives here and now? So today, we happen to be looking at his love. Some of you had this one circled on your calendar since January, right? And we're looking at it with the Apostle John as our guide. In context, John makes the claim in this letter that God is love in order to establish the basis for why God's children are called to love each other. And that means that the present-day critics of unloving Christians are correct, and at least this way. They're correct that our own love for one another is meant to be rooted in and shaped, in by, the, uh, shaped by the love shown to us by our God. And we'll see that argument in a moment here. That if God is loving, so must his followers be loving. And this author, John, knows something about love, by the way. The night before Jesus died, John is the one Jesus affectionately, affectionately leans on at their Passover Seder. At the cross, Jesus is the one, or John is the one Jesus trusts with taking care of his mom. John is the one who gives us John 3.16 about God's love for the world. And, and late in life, reports outside the Bible tell us that when John became so old that people had to carry him around on a mat, all he was willing to say to anyone who would listen was, little children love one another over and over again. This is that John, right? So listen to how he puts it here. Here's the fuller context of his claim that God is love. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. With that context in mind, I just want to reflect in depth on each of those three words at the end of verse 8. God is love. First, God. God, the claim being made here isn't just that the ultimate is love or even that love is love. The claim being made here is that the God that John grew up worshiping as an observant Jew, the God spoken of in the Hebrew Bible and then revealed in Jesus Christ, that God is love. It's like um, school teachers in the room will appreciate this. Uh, Sometimes students tell you stuff about their families, right? Sometimes students tell you a lot about their families. I remember from my days as a teacher. So say a student declares one day, We live in a big house because my dad sells drugs. (laughs) But then when you go on LinkedIn to do some research, because of course you do that as a teacher, you see that dad's in the C-suite at Pfizer. That context changes things, right? Like it it adds some needed information to flesh out the meaning of the original claim. It's a little bit like that when we say God is love, I think. If we didn't have any context, if we didn't know anything about this God, we might imagine his love to be any number of things. But once we realize that the one we're talking about is the God of the Bible, we realize that a whole 66 books of context need to be brought to bear on this statement that God is love. For example, whatever we end up discovering about his love, it can't negate that he's holy to the nth degree. It can't negate that he's just 
to the nth degree. It can't negate that he's transcendent to the nth degree. All the things we've looked at in these previous weeks, he is all those things perfectly. And so we have necessarily gone off track once we've imagined his love to be something that would negate any of those other attributes. God is one, Deuteronomy 6, right? So, and this God who is love is the one God, not internally confused or conflicted, but possessing attributes that are all interconnected. So he's holy in his love. He's loving in his administration of justice, etc. And that God's love needs to be understood in light of his other attributes is such a, that's such a critical distinction to make, and here's why. Almost every heresy in history has started with taking one true attribute of God or of Jesus and making that attribute out to be the only or overriding attribute. Examples of historical heresies that started with God is love. God is love, so everyone will end up in heaven in the end. Preserves God's love, but in the end leaves us without a God of justice. God is love, and so this wrathful God of the Old Testament must have been a a less mature, less perfect version of God than the one that we have now. Which, of course, leaves us with a God who changes, right? So we can't just take love and put it up here abstracted from any personal God and imagine that that love is somehow divine. The one who reveals himself as love also reveals himself to be many other things in Scripture, all of which need to be taken into account together as we understand any one aspect of his nature, like love. So it's God now is What I specifically want to explore here is, is this word serving as an equal sign in this sentence? Like God equals love, and therefore it could be flipped to say love equals God. In other words, are these two equivalent without overhang? We probably have a handful of grammar nerds here. I don't know if anyone wants to throw up a hand or elbow the person, the grammar nerd next to you, but uh, who may geek out on this. But it might be helpful to consider just for a moment some other noun is noun constructions like God is love. So think about what the is means in each of these, right? Summer is bliss. School is torture. When you think about either of those, right, it doesn't take long to realize, wait, we can't just slap an equal sign in there in between either of these sets of nouns as if they necessarily go both ways. Like summer may be bliss, but it's not only bliss. It's other things, right? It's hot. It's nostalgic. And just because I happen to be experiencing bliss at any given moment doesn't mean it's necessarily summer. School may be torture sometimes, but isn't only torture. It's other things. It's valuable. It's mandatory. And just because one is experiencing torture doesn't mean one is necessarily in school. See what I mean? By, by making this out to be an equivalency, we would distort the meaning. It's like A.W. Tozer said. He said, God is love is a fact, but not a definition. We can't equate love with God. It is something true of God, but it is not God. And a great danger of thinking of love as if it defined God is that it very easily slips into becoming some abstract standard outside of God that we imagine that God has to conform to. After all that, though, the question remains, 
So in what sense is God love then? If that word is isn't meant to define God, then why does John say it that way? I think at least part of that answer has to be that when John says God is love, he's claiming that God is the definer of love. The definer of love. He's not defined by love, but love is defined by him. In other words, the foolproof litmus test of whether anything that exists is loving is this. Does it line up with God's character? If it doesn't, it's not loving, period. According to scripture, love doesn't exist independently of God. You heard it in our scripture text. Let us love one another because love is from God. It also said, uh, where was it? Verse 10, love consists in this. Not that we love God. Our love is not the standard, but that he loved us and sent his son. That's the standard for what love is, right? Um, That means we can only really be confident of what love is by looking to him and by holding every other so-called love up against that measuring stick. This is critical for any number of our lived situations, right? For example, when your friend finds herself in a toxic relationship in which you can clearly see that she's being harmed, what does love look like? Is it really unconditional positive affirmation of all choices she's making? Or does love sometimes warn against what will bring harm? When your anorexic friend says that he thinks he's fat and asks if you agree. What does love look like? Unquestioned agreement? Would it be loving to say, for example, well, if that's what you see when you look in the mirror, then who am I to say you're not? Or does love sometimes speak a word of disagreement? What is love? We'll turn to that question in detail in a moment, but before we do, this word is has laid the foundation for that discussion. Namely, whatever love turns out to be, we can only know that love is that by looking to the standard of love, the God of the Bible, because he is love, the source of love, and therefore the definer of love. With all that, let's turn now to the final word, love. God is love lifted this portion of the sermon from D.A. Carson right up the road. Maybe I've tweaked some language here and there to say what he said using words that make sense to me, but as many of you know, tricky questions like this are why God put D.A. Carson here on this earth. So I'm grateful. Helpful analysis he's got on God's love, especially in this book, uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Um, I'm not sure I can improve upon it that much, so I'm passing it on to you more or less as he shares it. Uh, when the Bible speaks of God's love, whether in narrative or poetry or prose, it's not always the unconditional positive regard or unquestioned affectionate affirmation that we'd imagine. Actually, there are at least five ways in which scripture can talk about God's love. In other words, God is love in at least these five senses of that word love. As we're thinking through these, remember that a primary goal of this exploration is to get our own definitions of love to better match what the Bible says love actually is, as defined by God. So God is love in that, number one, he experiences love within himself. He's love in that he experiences love within himself. This is what we might call the intra-Trinitarian love of God. 
It's existed since eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit in this loving dance together before they had even, before God had even created anything. So examples of where we see this love in Scripture. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Father loves the Son, John 5, but it's not just the Father who loves the Son. Jesus says it too, on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. There has been this love that has existed within the Trinity from before anything was ever created that serves as the foundation for all other loves that we know and experience. Second, God is love in that he lovingly provides for everything he has made. God is love. Now it's a love for all of creation generally. Humans, but also animals, plants, all of creation. He provides for it. This is what we could call the providential love of God for all creation. So we've got verses like this. Jesus speaking, saying, For he causes, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody alike is taken care of by God. He sustains us all. Right? And then Jesus uses a chapter later, uh, the birds of the sky, right? Can, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. There's that love he's showing, even to the birds. Aren't you worth more than they? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow. Won't he do much more for you? you so he's, he's saying, yes, he's got a different kind of love for you humans than he does for them, but he does love the wildflowers and the birds as well. So this second sense of God's love is this providence that he displays to all of creation. He loves all of his creation, in a sense. Then third, we see that God is love and that he takes action to offer salvation to people who are opposed to him. So now we've, we've honed it in a little bit. From all of creation, birds, wildflowers, now we've zoomed in to just humanity. But it's all humanity generally that is recipients of this kind of love. We are all offered salvation. Uh, even those who are opposed to him. This is what we call the salvific love of God for a fallen world. Right? All humans generally are recipients of this. John 3.16, the classic example of it, right? For God loved the world in this way. And in John's gospel, this word world is almost always talking about not just like the earth. It's talking about the worldly powers opposed to God. So God loved even those opposed to him in this way. He gave his one and only son. So everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That was him exhibiting this sort of love. And then that, that draws back to Ezekiel 33. Tell them, as I live, this is a declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. God loves everybody in the sense that he, in some sense, wishes that every wicked person would turn from his way. And that's what would bring him pleasure in this sense. Now on to a fourth. God's love in all these three senses that we looked at, but we're zeroing in even more now. God is love also in that he lovingly draws his chosen people to himself in salvation. He lovingly draws a subset of all humanity, his chosen people, to himself in salvation. Not every human is a recipient of this kind of love. Right? Just as a bridegroom loves his bride in a way that he doesn't love every other woman, generally speaking, so God has an analogous love for some people, his people, that he doesn't have for other people. This goes beyond the general offering of salvation that we saw in this third one. 
Now God's not just offering salvation. This is the particular, effective love of God for the bride that he's chosen such that it actually saves us. For example, Deuteronomy 10 in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, God chose his people, Israel, one family out of all the families on earth, and he set his particular love on them in a way that he didn't set his particular love on every other family on earth, not yet. So he says, the heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet, the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples, as it is today. That's a love that he had for Abraham's family, and Isaac and Jacob's family, that isn't ever said to be had for all the rest of humanity generally. He loved them in that way out of all the peoples. And then in Malachi chapter 1, I've loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? And then he goes to Jacob and Esau comparison. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Wait, I thought we just saw that God loves all humanity generally. He does in one sense. In another sense, in this fourth sense of his electing love for his special people, he didn't love Esau. Esau wasn't elect in the way that Jacob was. I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. So we've got to make a distinction between different sorts of love that God exhibits in Scripture. And this differentiates. Esau is on the receiving end of some of that sort of love, but not on other sorts of that love. Finally, the Bible can also speak as though God is love and that he loves his people who obey him. With that last phrase being the key, who obey him. Unlike the previous one that had nothing to do with our obedience, God just sets his special affection on who he wants to. This is a love for his people that's conditioned on obedience. Conditioned on obedience. For example, Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. John 15, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Exodus 20, showing faithful love to a thousand generations of who? Of those who love me and keep my commands. There's a condition. It's, a, it's conditioned on obedience, this sort of love. In Psalm 103, from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who? Everybody on earth? No. His elect? No. A subset of that even. Those who fear him. And his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. So after this survey, we ask again, what does it mean that God is love? And I hope it's clear that a good answer to that question probably requires more nuance than we're generally eager to give it. If we were to take any one of these five loves and make it out to be the totality of what God's love is, period, end of sentence. We really do end with an anemic portrait that falls far short of the robust, multifaceted love that God actually exhibits. And while I'd tremendously enjoy taking time to say more about each of these five, the main thing that I was left feeling while reviewing these five is just, how crazy is it that God loves me? By no merit of my own, certainly, right? After all, as A.W. Tozer points out, love takes pleasure in its object. We who are loved by God in, in any one or more of these five senses, that means there's a God who takes pleasure in us. 
A God who, according to the Bible, created us with musical accompaniment as the morning stars sang and the sons of God shouted for joy. Do you know how few of the great world religions attempt to even claim that there's a God who delights in us in anything resembling this manner? Now, I hope you've been formulating some questions that you're going to text in. Remember, here's the number. But to get out in front of a few that I think are immediately pertinent, I'll just touch on these real quick to clarify a few things. First, if God loves us in all these different ways, would it be better for us to talk about the loves of God rather than the love of God? And probably the answer to that is no. It's probably better to understand these as interacting with each other as explaining each other, as overlapping with each other. Uh, like God's not selecting from this menu like love number three today and okay, let's employ love number two. Uh, these are probably best thought of as facets of the one love of God. Another question. Do we need to throw out some of our cliches about God's love? I think the answer to that is probably yes, right? Two that immediately come to mind. We sometimes well-intentioned and in a well-intentioned way, we've said, you know, God loves everybody the same. And as we've seen, well, he, he does lovingly provide for all of us. So, yeah. And, and as he, he does offer salvation to all of us. Sure. So in those senses, yeah, he does love us all the same. But there are people who are unloved by God in the last two senses, at least at present. God's love is unconditional. That's another cliche, right? Well, sure, he, he does offer salvation to, he doesn't offer salvation to people who've earned it. He offers salvation to all and draws people to himself who didn't earn it but at all, like all of us. Uh, yet, what do we do with, if you obey me, you'll remain in my love? Right? In light of verses like those, probably insufficient to say that God's love is unconditional and just put a period at the end of that sentence and stop it there. Another question, why does God love us? In light of all this, why does he love us? Certainly it's not because we're lovable. It's because it's in his nature to love and he can't violate his nature. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to read this in full, even though it's a little bit longer. This is God explaining to Israel why he set that love number four on them. Why did he show this kind of love to Israel and not to the other families on earth? They're starting to think, well, it's probably because we're so great. He said, no, no, no. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. See, the, the reason that he grounds this whole thing in is that it's because he loves you because he loved you, right? The Lord loved you because he loved you. He wanted to keep his oath he swore to your fathers. Why do you swear the oath to your fathers? Because he loved you, right? God chose to set his love on this particular people group. And it wasn't because of anything lovely about them. If you read all of chapter 7 and chapter 10, it goes into more detail about this. There's nothing lovely about us that made God love us, any of us. It's because of who he is and his character and nature. So what does that mean about us and our love for others? Why are we supposed to love others then? Specifically, are we supposed to love people because of some qualities we see in them? Or 
because we're children of a God who's love? Of course, the answer is the latter, right? We love because we're children of a God who's love. And when we hear that, some of us younger folks maybe say, that's a recipe for an unromantic, bland sort of love. But maybe we could ask the 80 and ups here. Is it unromantic to love someone not primarily for who they are, but primarily because of who God is? I'm not so sure. Neither was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Here's a poem she wrote to her husband. You're not going to be able to see it too well unless you're watching online. Um, I'm going to read it, though, out loud. It's got kind of ancient language, but I'll walk through it. She writes this to her husband. If thou must love me, let it be for naught except for love's sake only. Do not say, I love her for her smile, her looks, her way of speaking gently. For a trick of thought that falls well, falls well with me and search has brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. For these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee. And love, so wrought, may be unwrought so. Neither love me for thine own dear pities, wiping my cheeks dry. A creature might forget to weep, who bore thy comfort long and lose thy love thereby. But love me for love's sake, that evermore thou mayst love on, who loves eternity. Flowery language, but notice. Don't love me for my looks. Those can change. Don't love me for the way I talk. I might have been having a good day and tomorrow might be different. Don't even love me because of the experiences we've had. Wiping my cheeks dry. What happens if our experiences aren't as good in the future? In other words, don't love me because of anything about me. Anything I am, anything I do, that can all change. The only way I can have confidence that your love will continue, she says to her husband, is if you love me because of love. If you love me for love's sake. And that's why God loves us. For his own sake, right? Thank God that he does. Not because of anything lovely in us, but solely because of the love that exists within himself. That's what keeps him loving us. And so too, that's why we're called to love one another. Look again at John, 1 John uh, 4. We're called to love here. Not, there's no mention of anything about, well, if the people that are out there are lovely, and they're doing lovely things, and they're acting in lovely ways, then love them. None of that. Right? Why love? Because God is love. That's the ground for it. If he's, love, if he's still love tomorrow, then you keep loving others tomorrow. And you can imagine high school students' faces when Sarah and I tell them that we stay married not because we love each other, but because we love God. And that we love each other at this point not because the other is lovely, but because God has called us to, first and foremost. They say, what? I would be so sad. If my spouse said he loved God more than he loved me, right? That's when Sarah and I are like, honestly, that's the most reassuring thing that we could ever hear from each other, right? Because I'm going to change for better sometimes, but sometimes for worse. She's going to change for better sometimes, sometimes for worse. But our marriage is based on a God who never changes. And if it's based on a God who never changes, who always loves us and calls us to always love each other, that's the only way that I could ever really be confident that she's going to keep on loving me. And while we've said all along that the point of this series isn't to get practical tips for living, we've also said all along that this is practical to study God's character and nature. And you can see an example of that, right, in what we've been talking about here. God's love is practical. 
first and foremost, because how we imagine God's love will shape everything else about our lives. But it's also practical because God's love is one of those so-called communicable attributes, meaning that we're called to imitate him in his love. And so that's our big idea for today. Let's let our love increasingly take the shape of God's. Let's let our love increasingly take the shape of God's own love. That sort of love might be different from what Disney movies and Taylor Swift told us love is, though Disney movies and Taylor Swift may get some aspects of it right. But that out there is not our standard. Let's let our love increasingly take the shape of God's. And that means, on one hand, that if our fundamental posture toward the world is one of opposition, we may be out of line with a God who loves the world and who loves the world so much, in fact, that he was willing for that love to cost him dearly. Do our hearts go out in love to even the most hostile in this world? As Jesus' heart did, as he looked in love at the rich young ruler and as he even prayed for his executioners, do we love like that? On the other hand, Desiring for our love to increasingly take the shape of God's own love means that we cannot and must not unquestioningly affirm what harms. More than one pastor has pointed out that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And why? Because true love actually requires hate. Just as you can't claim to love Jewish people without hating the Holocaust, God's love for us is seen in part by his hatred for that which would harm us. And as it turns out, much of what would harm us is the sin in our hearts. While his wrath would leave people in their sin, his love so often takes the shape of allowing pain into our lives so that we're moved to put to death that sin in us before it takes hold of us and drags us down completely. He loves us enough to allow that pain in, to allow that painful reshaping. What does that mean for our love for others? Well, one thing it means is that our love can't become unquestioned affirmation. Even if that's what we're being asked to provide for someone. The call to love like God loves supersedes the call to love like people want us to love them. I'll clarify just to make sure we're on the same page. Don't hear me saying, don't hear me saying we're licensed to be jerks. Don't hear me saying that because someone out there needs to hear a hard word, I'm the one to share it. Not necessarily. Don't hear me saying that we ought to delight in speaking hard truth. God takes no pleasure in our pain. What we are saying is unwillingness to risk a relationship in order to say what needs to be said may not be the love that we think it is. It may just be selfish. After all, the the ultimate love The standard for love is a love that refused to act in self-preservation, but instead willingly chose to open himself up to be killed by the objects of his love. This is a love that came not as a snake to attack the hostile world, but rather as a worm, he says, to allow himself to be crushed by the hostile world. This is a love that so desired to be reconciled to his creatures that he paid their debt in his own body in order to have them back again. That's love. And in doing what he did at the cross, he forever set the standard that our own love must be cross-shaped.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. Uh, it's mysterious to us in some senses. It's, it goes beyond our comprehension. It, 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 it offends us at certain points and, and, and escapes us at others. Uh, but we ask that you would continue to just shower that love over us. The more we understand it, great, but even when we can't fully understand it, help us to experience it deeply in such a way that it transforms us and that it unites us more deeply and, and more connected to yourself. As we go out from this place today, help us to be people who extend that same love to those that we encounter, those who love us and those who don't love us. In Jesus' name, amen. As promised, I'm going to take a peek here and see if there are any questions texted in. Looks like we've got a few that I will attempt to address. Uh, here's one. How can we teach, convince, train Christians that love doesn't mean we must always affirm the choices of others when the culture says the opposite loudly and often? How can we teach, convince, train Christians that love doesn't mean we must always affirm the choices of others when the culture says the opposite loudly and often? I think what's wise to do is to just show ways in which that sort of so-called love breaks down, right? In examples that everyone can understand, I tried to give two, I think, in this sermon of the person struggling with anorexia, for example. Um, not many of us would really say it's loving to affirm everyone uh, uh, an unhealthy self-image in someone that could do harm to them. By We're in agreement if I affirm their distorted self-image, it could further harm them, right? We can understand that it, what needs to be said sometimes is a word of disagreement. And so if we can kind of build a bridge in that sense of like, hey, in a similar way, there are other situations too in which we may be called and what must be, might be most loving is not to affirm, but to uh, graciously and lovingly introduce a question that challenges preconceived notions. Second question, does God love his people when they are in disobedience? John 17, 12. Ooh, we got a scripture reference to chase down. Let's do that. John 17, 12. Uh, Jesus says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. It's talking about Judas. So does God love his people when they're in disobedience? And I think... That answer is yes, certainly in at least one sense, in many senses, at least two or three of the senses that we looked at, right? In the same sense that God loves everybody, in the same sense that God loves all his creation, same sense that if that person does belong to his people, then he loves them in that electing sort of love still. Um, but there's a sense in which we won't experience the fullness of his love for us when we are in a pattern of deliberate disobedience. Um, because that remaining in my love is something that we're not doing. And so we find ourselves, and some of us have experienced this, like for a season, it feels like we're unable to access that love. We can't feel loved by God in the same way anymore. And part of it is because we're in that sin, and that has uh, precluded us from experiencing that fifth sense of the love of God that's conditioned on obedience. Uh, here's another one. How do we reconcile love three and four? So three was the one in which God offers salvation generally to all humanity. 
four was specific love for the elect. God loves everyone, but only draws some people to salvation. How do we explain that to a neighbor who says God is evil for making people be sent to hell? Um, I think that uh, the bride analogy is one that has been helpful for me, right? So I was thinking about this morning, like, I've got a best friend that I love so much, and I know he loves me so much. We have hugged each other and wept together without saying a word for like 10 minutes straight when it was time to part company. We uh, have been there for each other for 20 years now through thick and thin. I know for a fact he would be there for me. No questions asked anytime I need him. Um, Yet, if I said to him tomorrow, hey, brother, like, I just need you to know, like, I've got a love for Sarah that I don't actually have for you in the same way. That wouldn't diminish at all his experience of my love for him. He'd be like, yeah, of course, you know, I know how much you love me and that doesn't reduce it. You know, it's a different sort of love. And so because God has a fourth sort of love for his elect, a bride sort of love, there's no reason why that has to diminish in any way the great, tremendous love that he has for all of humanity, that he would extend salvation to all and desire that all would be saved in that sense. And so maybe I'd get at it that way. Finally, uh, last question here. What does it look like in a practical sense to grow in the faith and heart knowledge of God's love? And that's so important because we've got prayers in the New Testament in which Paul is praying for these churches that we would grow in our knowledge of God's love, like the breadth and width and height and depth, but also in the experience of God's love. And so it's not enough for it just to be something that comes in our head. Sometimes when it adjusts, when the picture adjusts in our head, it can do something in our hearts, but it can't be reduced to just head, right? Just head knowledge. And so in a practical sense, to grow in the faith and heart knowledge of God's love for me personally has required, there hasn't been able to be a shortcut to it besides time, time spent with God. Uh, time spent with God in worship, Time spent with God clearing out all other tasks and things I'm doing for him to just be with him in his presence, maybe in silence or maybe uh, reflecting over and over again on something simple uh, from his word or a simple song. Um, but as we do that and take the time to be in his presence and allow him to, uh, to do that and we ask for it, that's a prayer that he is delighted to grant, to shower his love on us in a way that we can experience. He doesn't promise that in every season we will feel it. There will be dry seasons, and sometimes by no sin of our own. Uh, yet, like Jacob, we wrestle with him. Say, God, give me that blessing. I'm not going to stop wrestling with you till you give me that blessing. Let me experience your love. I'm going to come back to you again tomorrow, and I'm going to ask you to do it. I'm going to keep asking you for it until you do it. He will in his time. Let's close out and worship together with one more song. Thanks for those questions.